on the web at wagp.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved as a workman who is not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. So glad that you can be with us. And if you're here for the very first time, we hope that you will uh, enjoy this next hour as we take questions. Uh, Sorry about that. A small technical difficulty Uh, for the next hour. We'll be taking people's questions from God's word. If there's an issue you're facing in your life or a particular challenge that you would like biblical counsel on. If we can be of service to you today, give us a call. 525-1859. When you call, uh, Deb will dictate your question here to us and uh, we're happy to receive it. You can also, uh, Email us here directly into the studio at TBL. That stands for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP.net. Rick, as always, it's great to be here in this new year, and we're so pleased that uh, we can uh, be here with God's people as we edify one another from the Word of God. Indeed, Pastor. And uh, we had a caller from Tennessee who had the following questions. First, She heard you talk about in a message from Romans, she thinks, about the books in God's library. And she'd like to know what they are. Okay. Uh, Yeah, you know, God has a library of books. For instance, uh, the psalmist refers to the fact that God has a book in which he uh, records all of our tears. That's an interesting book. And literally, yes, uh, God God sees broken hearts. And the Lord is... uh, Uh, pleased with humility before him as God's people cry out to him. God has a book of works uh, that is uh, a record of all the unbelievers in every work that they've done. God has a book and several books. The books were opened in which were recorded the works of all the lost people and God judges them according to the books. That is all the works that are recorded in those books. Why is that important? Because God is a just God. God uh, justly deals out wrath. Wrath is a terrible thing. It's a frightening thing to fall into the hands of the living God, as the New Testament records. But when people fall into God's hands, they will justly fall there. And so their works that are recorded in those books, among other things, will indeed show that they are lost, that they did not have the fruit of conversion. But God also speaks the truth that hell, though it is awful for anyone who goes, won't be the same for everyone who goes. So, for instance, in Romans 2, um, the Apostle Paul is describing people who had much information, but they did very little with it. And he says, and do you suppose this, O man, that when you pass judgment upon those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you'll escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, 
You're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath. On that day in the righteous revelation of God who will render to every man according to his deeds. So God describes the fact just like a believer can treasure up in heaven eternal treasure an unsaved man can store up wrath for the day of wrath so there's a number of books god records our tears all the days that we were to live were written for us even before there was one in god's book the, the book of uh, the, the years that we would live. There's a book, again, that records unbelievers' deeds, but there's also a book that we, uh, we, we call the Lamb's Book of Life, and it's a book that records all those who are saved. And someday, uh, if you are indeed saved and you meet the Lord in heaven, you will see that your name was in that book. In fact, even before the foundation of the world, because God is in his omniscience knew who would respond to his grace, who would respond to general revelation, specific revelation. If God didn't know that God wouldn't be God. That's why he can write your name down before the foundation of the world. Sometimes, uh, or not so much anymore, but we used to sing a, a song years ago. There's a new name written down in glory. Well, not really. Uh, that name was written there before the foundation of the world. There's a check mark put next to it, maybe, but but uh, when it happens in time and space. But So God has a number of books in his library is what I'm trying to say, and uh, it's a good question. Let's go to the next one. All right. She had a second question. Um, she would like to know, does God have a free will? course, because we're made in the Imago Dei, we're made in the image of God. And so God uh, chooses, Um, God chooses to execute wrath on some people. God chooses to show his mercy and grace on other people because they've received Jesus as their savior. God is not a machine. He's not a force. He's a person. And part of being a person, as described in the Bible, is that you have a mind, you have an emotion, emotional side to you, and you have a will. So man is made on three levels, as Paul describes to the church at Thessalonica. Uh, There's a physical level, there's a soulish level, and then there's the spiritual level. And the soul, really, the suke, uh, we get our word psychology from it. Uh, It makes up the mind, will, and emotions. And that's why, by the way, angels are described as persons, not humans. They're not human persons. They're angel, angelic persons because they too have mind, will, and emotion. But humans are made in the image of God. So we are a reflection of what the Lord God is like. And he's not a machine. He's not some big computer in outer space. He's not some artificial intelligence He's a person, and yes, he has a free will. He chooses. Uh, he, for instance, um, in 1 Corinthians 12, describes the fact, just to give you one illustration, that uh, he gives gifts as he wills, as he chooses. So God, yes, has a free will. Let's go to the next question. All right. Uh, a person who apparently was visiting and uh, heard Rabbi Hanok Teller uh, a few months ago Uh, has a number of questions in reference to that. First of all, um, this person says they're still unclear about um, uh, whether, uh, let's see, um, they would like you to comment, actually, on the following issue. Since Orthodox Judaism has not accepted Jesus as the Messiah, how do they deal with sin on a regular basis beyond the once-a-year celebration of Yom Kippur? Uh, the Day of Atonement. In other words, since they no longer engage in animal sacrifices, how do they receive forgiveness for their sins? 
having not recognized Jesus as their Savior? Well, that's a good question. Uh, Let me put it in context for some. You know, for all practical purposes, of course, all animal sacrifices in the temple ended in 70 AD. Uh, A prophecy that Jesus made that's recorded in Matthew 24 uh, is in reference to the destruction of the temple. And Jesus said not one stone would stand upon the next. Of course, the Romans came in under the general Titus Vespucian. They burned the temple when uh, all the gold in the temple began to melt. Uh, It seeped down between the rocks and the Roman uh, soldiers literally pried apart each and every rock to obtain the gold. And just as Jesus said, not one stone would stand upon another. Sometimes people ask me when we go to Israel, they say, "I, I, I know that passage in Matthew But I don't understand what I see in front of my eyes. And they see what we call the Western Wall. It was once called the Wailing Wall before 1967 because the Jewish people did not have access to that side of Jerusalem. But in the 67 war, of course, they were able to retake all of Jerusalem. And that section of the promised land that God gave them was indeed enjoyed and has been since. So it's usually referred to as the Western Wall today. But that's the retaining wall. Uh, By the way, we are going to Israel in September of this year, 2016. And if you're listening today and you have interest, go to searchthescriptures.org. We're going to have a fantastic time together. I think we already, we've just opened it. We already have 27 people who are signed up and planning to come. Uh, But if you'd like to come to that trip, you will learn so much uh, about the visuals that you see and read about in the Bible, and uh, it will open up so much of God's word to you. But lay that aside, in 70 AD, the temple was totally destroyed. So the ability to offer sacrifices was gone. You say, well, couldn't they offer sacrifices, um, you know, in a new place, in another place? Absolutely not. God made it very, very clear that when they offered animal sacrifices, there was a specific location in which it was to be done. And so, for instance, in Deuteronomy chapter 12, uh, let me find it here. He says in verses, um, verse 13, he says, be careful that you do not offer your burnt offerings in every cultic place you see, but in the place where the Lord God chooses. And so repeatedly you have an admonition just like that, that God specifically designated that the place in which they were to do their animal sacrifices was the place and the location of the temple, which, of course, has been gone for for centuries. In the book of Leviticus, let me turn over there for a moment. In Leviticus chapter 17, God makes this statement, and it's an important statement. He said, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar, referring to the altar there in the temple. I've given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. And so the writer to the Hebrews, of course, a New Testament book that is written to uh, Jewish Christians, uh, references this truth that's found here in Leviticus 17:11, And he makes this statement in Hebrews 9 in verse 22. He says, and according to the law, one must, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So again, the life is in the blood. 
what is the wages of sin? Death. The soul that sins must surely die. So God in his perfect justice dictated that death is what our sin warrants. That's why, among other reasons, good deeds cannot save you. That's why you cannot be good enough to earn or merit heaven. Salvation must be accomplished through death, but not just anyone's death, but the death of the Messiah himself. The the blood of goats and animals prefigured what the Lord Jesus was going to do. They could never take away sin. But according to the law, one may almost say, almost say, all things are cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So if you read the Old Testament carefully, you discover that the law requires, in almost all cases, for something to be cleansed or purified, and so there was the necessity of blood. There are a few exceptions where God allowed certain things, in contrast to persons, to be cleansed. Um, So certain objects could be cleansed by water or by fire, but when it came to the forgiveness of sin, it could only be dealt with on the basis of blood. So obviously, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And a person, in essence, uh, when they went to the priest and he offered a sacrifice on behalf of them for whatever kind of sin they had committed, or even on Yom Kippur, Yom, of course, is the Hebrew word for day, on the day of Kippur uh, atonement, He would go into that special place, the Holy of Holies. But again, those things just prefigured what baptism is to us today as we look back on the finished work of Messiah. When we're baptized in the word literally means to immerse and to be brought under the water, we are saying by symbol that our faith is in the one who died, who is buried, is seen in going under the water, and who is raised. And of course, the Bible calls the death, burial, and the resurrection, the gospel, the power of God to save you. And so what baptism is to us, the animal sacrifices were to them. In baptism, we look back at the completed work of Messiah, and the animal sacrifices, they looked forward to what Messiah would do, but neither symbol saved. Uh, both were necessity be, of necessity because they're both expressions of faith. And so there's an assumption in the New Testament that if a person's faith is real, that they will be baptized. And that's why Jesus makes some of the statements that he makes in reference to baptism, not as a means to salvation, but as an expression that your salvation is genuinely true. So with no blood sacrifices today, because there's no temple and you can't just put a temple wherever you want, um, the Jews have no lawful way for atoning for their sin. Now they still observe Passover, of course, but without the sacrifice. Uh, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, still one of the high holy days in Israel. It's still in the calendar. They observe it every year. But there's never an offering that's made. No animal sacrifice. Why? Because they recognize you couldn't just do it anywhere. So the stipulations of the Mosaic Law have remained unchanged. Um, And so a Jewish person in the truest sense uh, cannot do what God dictated for them to do. So what do they do? Um, They take verses like Hosea 6.6. Let me just turn there to the prophet Hosea for just a moment. And uh, this is a a passage of scripture that a number of Jewish rabbis that I've dialogued with over the years have quoted to me. In Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, God said, For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice and in the knowledge of God rather than offerings. And so they'll say, well, you know, God desires mercy, not sacrifice, the acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. And so from that, they 
basically assume that if uh, they uh, commit themselves to good deeds or to sacrificial acts, that somehow they can propitiate a holy God, but they cannot. This verse is really being taken out of its context. It's no different from what Samuel the prophet said to Saul when he said, look, I, you know, it's not sacrifice that I desire, it's obedience. And if you remember on that occasion, when they were to do precisely what God said and, and, Saul, and um, Samuel said, so what's this bleeding I hear in the background? Oh, you know, we, we save those uh, animals for the Lord. And he gives these excuses and it's in that context. He said, look, God would rather have you to obey than to sacrifice. And that's the same spirit in a Hosea chapter six and verse six. So um, I will say that there is a group of Orthodox Jews in Israel who recognize this. And so there's, if you go to Jerusalem, there's a group called the Temple Institute. And at the Temple Institute, they have remanufactured all of the articles that were used in the worship of God in the temple. They have created, you know, all of the necessary altars. They've created, um, you know, the necessary garb that a priest would wear, that they, the only thing they are waiting for is permission to build a new temple. They have architectural plans. They're, they're completed. And when will that permission come? I suspect it will not come until the antichrist comes. The man of sin comes because he is designated as we're going to be studying shortly in Daniel as a man of peace. And so we do know that the temple is going to be rebuilt. How do we know it? Because Daniel, the prophet tells us that then in the middle of the 70th week of his prophecy, in the middle of that seven year time, the abomination of desolation is going to be committed. Uh, Jesus references that in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, 15. And the Apostle Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2 further explains it, that the Antichrist will go into the temple and make himself out to be God. In fact, I won't be at all surprised that when that event happens, that that will actually be the dedication of a new temple. That the midpoint of the, what we call the tribulation, that becomes great tribulation like the world has never seen before, uh, that uh, that will be the dedication of the temple. Uh, in either case, we know it's going to be rebuilt. We know plans have already been enacted for it. Uh, right down to the necessary animals, even herds of red heifers that are now being raised in Israel. So some incredible things have happened in that respect. Anyway, that's a great question. Um, I appreciate you asking it. 525-1859-843-525-1859 is the phone number. Or again, you can email us here directly into the studio at TBL for the Bible line at WAGP.net. All right. Mia from Springfield, Georgia, would like to know, what do you think happens to alcoholics when they die? Well, uh, it's, it's a good question, kind of a loaded question, because uh, you're really asking about a moral issue. Now, I know we use the term alcoholic differently and in different contexts, but the Bible, of course, never uses the term alcoholic. Uh, People today, even who have been saved out of a drinking background, will often still identify themselves as an alcoholic. And that's not necessarily a bad thing to do. What what are they saying? They're saying, I'm basically, you know, uh, one drink away from going, you know, back into this horrible life of addiction. 
But again, it's not so much addiction as it is a sin, and it's not a disease as it is a moral issue. If alcoholism is a disease, then God could not hold us morally accountable for it. But when God speaks of drunkenness, and that's the term that he uses, he couples it with other moral issues. For instance, in the book of Galatians, when Paul reminds the Galatian church that they need to walk by the spirit to depend upon the Holy Spirit, that they might not carry out the desires of the sinful nature. He says, now the deeds of the flesh of the sinful nature are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things or those who live like this, those who have this as their lifestyle, shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Of course, he is going to say in the next breath in verse 24, now those who belong to Christ, Jesus, have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. And so crucifixion of the flesh is a pitiless, painful, decisive act that someone makes. And so he's again, contrasting two people, those who walk by the spirit versus those who walk by the flesh. Is it possible for a Christian to fall into any kind of sin? Yes. That's why he says, I say, walk by the spirit that you will not carry out the desires of the flesh for the flesh sets its desire against the spirit in the spirit against the flesh, such that they're in opposition to one another. So if you've genuinely been born again, There's a new desire, there's a new want to, there's a new proclivity towards the things of God that you didn't have. You say, well, I never drank. Well, wonderful. Uh, There's all kinds of sins that we can be guilty of. But there's a new desire to want to serve God, to say no to the old sin nature, and to say yes to the living Lord. And so a Christian can fall into any kind of sin, but one, the key to recognizing Uh, our need for a savior is to deal with drinking as a moral issue because that's how God describes it. If you say, well, it's just a, a disease, then how can God hold you any more accountable for that disease than he can for homosexuality, the other things that he lists in it? It's not a disease. It's a sinful, willful decision. Now, certainly people's bodies can become diseased through the use of alcohol Certainly, it is an addictive drug uh, that you become enslaved to. And that's why Jesus said the one who sins can become the slave to sin. And that's why God warns against using it. The exception was to the use of strong drink in the Bible was as a painkiller. They would see strong drink as a blessing because they would mix it with water, usually in a four or five to one ratio. Five parts water, one part wine. Four parts water, one part wine. Even in the second century pastoral manual, we call the didash, they said when you celebrate the Lord's Supper and you didn't have, you know, unfermented wine and you had strong drink, then you would mix it in a four to one ratio. They didn't have the preservatives and the refrigeration techniques and other things that we have where they could have fresh grape juice, which was also called oinus or yayin as well. So when the term wine is used, certainly it's uh, a poor exegetical decision to say that 
it's always unfermented. That's just stupid. That, that, that doesn't even make sense. Even an unbeliever who can simply read the Bible can see that it means not that, that every usage of wine is unfermented. But there are usages of the, in the Bible where wine is referring to unfermented drink. Um, and the term can be used in both contexts. And, of course, people love to say, well, Jesus made wine. Well, what kind of wine did he make? You know, did he make wine that would make people drunk? Uh, is, that, is that what he did? Did the Savior uh, help people get deeper into sin? Did he make people get high? I, I think not. That's a blasphemous position that you should take. And not to mention, where did fermentation come from? It came from the fall. Uh, it's a product of sin. And I can't believe that Jesus did any miracle that even had the slightest taint of fallenness in it. So it would only be logical when Jesus made wine that he made unfermented wine, but it was spectacular wine indeed. Uh, It just speaks of the taste, but not of whether or not it's fermented. In fact, the text I think would mitigate against that. And if you don't believe that, you might want to go back and listen to a message I did years ago on John chapter 2 at searchthescriptures.org. The other text that I would bring to your mind would be from first Corinthians six, where the apostle says, or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. Again, these are all moral issues, all grouped together. It's not like, well, drunkenness is a disease and homosexuality is a, uh, a moral issue. No, just as homosexuality and adultery are moral issues, so is the issue of drunkenness. And of course, the next verse says, and such were some of you. But God washed you. He sanctified you. He justified you. Can a Christian fall into these sins? Yes. Then he goes into a discourse in verses 12 through 20, exhorting the Corinthian church to guard themselves from sexual immorality. So what's the difference between a a Christian who got drunk and an unbeliever who got drunk. Well, number one, if a Christian gets drunk, a real Christian, and they can, obviously, as New Testament passages teach, like 1 Corinthians 11, they, they were getting drunk even at the Lord's Supper. It's number one, they're grieved on the inside because they are, have now been awakened in their spirit by the Holy Spirit. And when we sin, the Spirit of God is grieved. There is a sense of remorse and dissatisfaction with ourselves and before God that has been heightened far beyond just the conscience that an unbeliever has. So there's that dimension of this grieving and awareness that a believer who got drunk has. But two, if a believer gets drunk, he comes under the discipline of God. And so God disciplines the drunk, just like he disciplines the adulterer, just as he disciplines any Christian who falls into any kind of habitual sin. Why? Because those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And so the unbeliever doesn't experience the discipline of God, but the believer does. But I think I'm getting ready to make a statement that not all of you will agree with because some of you don't want to agree with it because you have a family member who's been a drunk and it's nearly impossible for you to conceive that they would spend an eternity without the living God. Or maybe a family member who has already died is a drunk. Well, God in the end is a righteous judge and he will sort it all out. 
But if a person is a Christian, the general principle is, is that their life changes. And if their life does not change, then they have good reason to examine themselves, as Paul exhorted the Corinthians to do, to test themselves to see if they be of the faith. And so that's important. You know, if we were dealing with someone who is in homosexual, a homosexual lifestyle, would we say, well, I guess you're a born again gay. Well, look, there's people like that, like Ray Boltz. He says, I'm a born again gay. Uh, and there are a whole, there's a whole denomination of churches called the metropolitan churches. They call themselves born again, gay people. That's an oxymoron. So God gives the general principle that your life changes, but he also gives an exception that a person can fall into any kind of sin. But if they do, they're grieved on the inside and they come under the discipline of God. Look, I did a um, funeral years ago and I had to do the funeral with integrity. And this was a man who came to our church out of an alcohol drug background and he met the Lord and really he was free from it and really went on. And then he went back to it and he was in deep remorse. I sent him to a ministry where he spent 90 days there and came back and lived another three or four years, totally free from it. And then went back to it. And I think the Lord had had enough in light of his testimony. And this man who was as strong as an ox had a heart attack and just dropped dead. You know, I can't say at many funerals that, you know, this person died under the judgment of God, but I did at that funeral because I was absolutely convinced a, that he was born again and B that he came under the worst kind of discipline. In fact, in dealing with drunkenness, Paul says in first Corinthians eleven thirty, for this reason, because some of them were getting drunk. Many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. Some of you died. God took you home prematurely. And so there is some sins that the apostle John notes in his first epistle that lead to physical death. And if it's a sin that brings great discredit to the cause of Christ and a mockery to his name, sometimes God just says enough is enough. One, I'm not going to allow you to continue to hurt yourself. And number two, I'm not going to allow my name to be mocked by you. And God takes the individual home to be with him. So I say all this to say this, that if some of you have an alcoholic relative, let's just use the biblical term. If you have a relative who's a drunkard, because that's what God would say. And I'd rather use that term because alcoholism has the concept of disease behind it where drunkenness has the moral aspect to it. If you have a relative like that, then you should do everything in your power to exhort them, to examine themselves, to see if they are really of the faith. If they know all the right theology, it's by grace through faith, not of works, et cetera, et cetera. And they can give you the plan of salvation. That doesn't mean they know the man of salvation. And if their life hasn't changed and they have no desire for it to change, then they have good reason to question themselves. And so rather than just come alongside and say, oh, mom, dad, I know you're born again. You're just a, bad, you're just a born again drunk. Uh, get them to question. Uh, take them to New Testament passages that deal with this issue. Better to question themselves now and to have the opportunity to test themselves now than before it's forever too late. Anyway, great 
great question. Let's go to the next one. All right, 843-525-1859. If you have a question on this morning's Bible line, you can also email us at tbl at net. And a caller heard you mention about a handout that gives all the verses in the Bible that hyper-Calvinists use to say people cannot choose whether they go to heaven or not. Uh, Is this handout available? Well, it's more than a handout. Um, I taught a course on soteriology. Uh, Maybe some of our listeners are not aware that we offer something called the Institute of Biblical Studies. And on a regular basis, I am reading papers that people who are in the various institute courses are taking, and I read them and evaluate them and grade them. Uh, It's a 33-hour course of study that's an equivalent to a Bible certificate, though now for the first time, some seminaries are actually making that a master's degree. That's, you know, interesting. Uh, Traditionally, the standards were always higher, I think, amongst evangelical seminaries, And so the uh, shortest master's degree you could get was about 68 hours when they started offering an MA. Uh, Before that, they didn't offer an MA, a two-year master's, but they offered an MDiv, a three-year master's. And um, then some, for many years, of course, have offered the THM, the Master's of Theology, which is uh, 128 hours in a lot of seminaries. That's the one that I went through. But now they're making this a master's degree. We call it a Bible certificate as it's traditionally um, recognized because in seminaries that offer a Bible certificate, you don't necessarily have to have a college degree in which to uh, take the course of study. Uh, In most seminaries, because they want to maintain their accreditation, there's certain prerequisites that they have to set. And accreditation can be important in that if you have graduates that want to go into secular institutions to make an influence and impact for Christ, they lose that opportunity if they don't graduate out of an accredited institution. So like one of the guys I studied with at Dallas Seminary went on to teach at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And he was able to do that because he graduated from an, incredi- an accredited institution. And two, it, it gives a certain amount of legitimacy to the degree. I mean, there are pastors who pay 2000 bucks, and an organization will come into their church on their Sunday morning and award them a doctorate. And now they're called doctor, you know, so-and-so. Um, there are doctoral degrees out there that are a utter joke. And there are just some Christian so-called organizations that offer these doctoral degrees that are just an absolute joke. You might as well just got it through a mail order certificate. And what you have to do doesn't even begin to represent one-tenth of what's typically uh, necessary to get a doctoral degree. So um, we offer this 33-hour course of study, and one of the courses is soteriology. Soto is the word that means to save. And soteriology is the study of salvation. And in that course of study, which you can go to searchthescriptures.org, I deal with, in one of the sessions, with Calvinism. And one aspect of Calvinism is it relates to soteriology, because really the doctrine of uh, Calvinism 
is a very broad doctrine that encompasses every realm of theology, whether it's their doctrine of last things, what we call eschatology, whether it's their doctrine of the church called ecclesiology. It colors every avenue of theology. So I deal with Calvinism in that course, just as it relates to salvation. And we deal with the issues of, um, you know, election and limited atonement and things like that. The other option is you could simply, and this might be probably the most helpful to you, would be to listen to Romans 9 through 11. Uh, Listen to 9 through 11 in our series on the book of Romans. And in that series, I deal with sovereign election. What is it? What is it not? And I deal with other issues. Uh, Calvin had his thinking colored through what today we would call replacement theology. There are churches typically in the Presbyterian slash reformed camps, uh, John Piper and people like that, who basically say there is no future for Israel. The, the church, the body of Christ has replaced Israel. That God's done with the Jewish people. He's not. Uh, God made scores and scores of promises that were unconditional in nature to the people of Israel, many of which have not yet been fulfilled. And some people just haven't thought this through, but they're really saying, God, you're either not faithful or you're being dishonest. So the way they get around that is they just say, well, the church is the new Israel. No, we're not. We have not replaced national Israel. And God is going to use the people of Israel to finish his plan for the ages. One of the reasons I believe with all my heart that God has not just gotten rid of us as Americans, as the USA, is because we are one of the few allies for Israel. And that's an important issue to me as a Christian pastor. It's an important issue for me when I look at people who are running for president of the United States. Do they really have deep biblical rooted convictions that Israel is God's people and that what God said in Genesis 12, those who will bless Israel, I will bless. You know, and there are some people in our nation and people who are running for the highest office in the land who I don't think have those convictions. And I think what they will do when push comes to shove is they'll do what becomes expedient and what they think is best for America. And they could easily abandon Israel. And it makes me nervous when even the current administration speaks in those terms. So um, listen to Romans 9 through 11. Calvin, because he thought the church had replaced Israel. When I was in Yad Vashem, I was again embarrassed. Yad Vashem is what we call the Holocaust Museum in Israel. And it's embarrassing to read the statements of Augustine and Luther in Calvin and some of the anti-Semitic statements that they made concerning the Jewish people. It's just grievous. And, but because he believed that the church had replaced Israel, and we call that replacement theology, that the church is the new Israel, the way he read Romans 9, 10, and 11 were entirely wrong. He just totally missed it. So I go through those issues very, very carefully, verse by verse, and there are numerous quotations in those three chapters from the Old Testament. And we go back and we look at each of those Uh, verses that are quoted in Romans 9 through 11 in their original historical context. 
So a study of Romans 9 through 11 is not for the faint-hearted if you really want to understand this issue. But if you will go through those chapters, I think it will really make a lot of sense and a lot of your questions will be answered. And by the way, we're getting ready to begin a brand new course on pneumatology uh, beginning uh, two weeks from Wednesday, two weeks from tomorrow and February the 17th, a new course on pneumatology. Pneumatos is the Greek word for spirit. And so we're doing a course on the doctrine of the spirit, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, who he is, how he functions in our life, how he empowers us, what prevents him, how he gives us all the ramifications of the role and work of God, the Holy Spirit, not just now in the church age, but even during the time of the great tribulation. So if that's of interest to you, um, come uh, here in just a couple weeks. All right, very good. We had a caller wanting to know, what is the law of Christ? Well, uh, it's a good question. Um, I deal with this in my exposition of the Gospel of John and also in my exposition of the book of James because James uh, deals with this as well. And so let me just read one text. It says, if, however, you are fulfilling the royal law, According to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he's become guilty of all. And so he speaks of the royal law, the, the law of the king and the law of Christ when he was in essence Asked what was the greatest of all the commandments. You can read of it in Matthew 22. He said the greatest commandment is what we call the Shema. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, strength, and soul. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, Jesus said it this way in John's gospel. By this all men will know you are my disciples. By the love that you have for one another. And then he said, a new commandment, a new law, I give unto you that you love one another as I have loved you. So how is this a new law? Because I thought God said in the Torah that we're to love God and our neighbor as ourselves. Yes, it is. But it's a new law in this respect. And so we can deem it the law or the commandment of Christ and that there's a new quality to it and a new ability that old covenant saints didn't have that you love one another as I have loved you. How has he loved us unconditionally sacrificially? How can we do that? It's absolutely impossible apart from being born from above. So Jesus is calling just like he does all the way through uh, the sermon on the Mount. He is calling his people to a higher standard of love an unconditional love that God, the Holy Spirit, who is also called the Spirit of Christ, as we're going to see in our study of pneumatology, is able to perform through us and in us as we depend upon him to uh, carry these uh, principles out. Good question. Let's go to the next one. All right. 525-1859, area code 843, or email us here directly at TBL for the Bible line at net. On a previous Bible line question, a listener says, you mentioned a Bible that does not have a chapter or verse divisions. And the caller would like to know, what is the name of that Bible and what version is it in? Well, the first one I ever had like that, uh, actually, it's copyrighted in the 1940s. And it was a, a Bible, Old and New Testament, 
that was all um, uh, books of the Bible just with chapter divisions, but no verse divisions. And, uh, and that was done in the King James Version of the Bible. I've got a very old one. I used that for a number of years. I've never seen another one like it, not in used bookstores. Uh, you couldn't find it if you wanted to, as far as I know. But just a couple of years ago, the English Standard Version came out what's called the Reader's Bible or the Reader's Edition of the ESV. And that, um, a, a little different, the one I had that was done in the 40s just had books of the Bible, no chapter, no verse divisions. It was just like Matthew, and it started in Matthew and went all the way through 1 and all the way through 28. But the chapters were not enumerated, nor were the um, verses. Uh, with the Reader's Bible, which is excellent, uh, they have chapter divisions, but no verse divisions. And I, I actually uh, like that. In fact, I just read through the Gospel of Matthew a few weeks ago using that edition. And, and yesterday I started the Gospel according to Mark using that edition. Uh, it, there's something nice about not having the verses there and uh, they're not distracting and it kind of helps you to think kind of holistically. So when you think of Matthew's gospel, you know, Matthew 1, well, that's the genealogy of Christ and the, you know, visitation to Joseph. And Matthew 2, the, you know, that's the Magi and they're fleeing to Egypt. And, and, and all the way through, you can kind of think your way through the book of Matthew sometimes. And when you read a Bible that doesn't have the verse divisions and you're just reading it, you tend to, to think a little bit big picture. And so it's helpful in that respect. And sometimes two chapter and verse divisions can be distracting because they are artificial. Of course, they were not put there by God. They were put there to help us to find our way around. And in a few places, maybe they weren't always, the divisions weren't always uh, properly Chosen. I'm not saying I would have done a better job, but uh, sometimes they can be distracting because you start, you know, say in 1 Corinthians 13.1, but what he is speaking of in 1 Corinthians 13.1 goes back to the prior paragraph in 1 Corinthians 12. Um, and if you don't see that, then you miss the whole flow of thought. So anyway, good question. Appreciate it. Let's go to the next one. All right. We've got a question from Gail in Guyton, Georgia. She writes, My niece is 23 years old. Her mom does not approve of her boyfriend, now fiancé. All profess to be believers, both homeschooled. My niece's mom and dad are divorced. Dad is okay with fiancé. Mom is not. Mom will not give blessing for marriage. Mom will not allow younger 20-year-old daughter to participate in sister's wedding. Should my niece be calling off the wedding, or should mom's attitude and actions? So... Here's a family, and I feel your pain. Uh, Her niece is 23 years old. Her mom doesn't approve of her boyfriend, now her fiancé. Now, why she doesn't, I don't know. Uh, Because both profess to be born-again Christians. Uh, Both have been homeschooled, this uh, potentially future husband and wife. So their parents were obviously deeply committed to trying to raise them in the right way by making that sacrificial choice. And, um, and of course, uh, it notes here that the niece, niece's mom and dad have been divorced. And so there's a split here in the family. Dad says, oh, yeah, you want to marry? Go ahead. I marry this guy. Mom says, I don't think it's a good decision. So she's unwilling to give her blessing. And she won't allow the 20-year-old daughter to participate in the wedding. So how do you deal with this? 
Well, I would just say to the married couple, if they had ear, or the potential married couple, if they have ears to hear, they would certainly want to know why it is that mom would not give her blessing and to really think that through. Look, there's no one who loves you more than your father and your mother, typically in this world. Now, dad's in favor of it. Mother's not. But understand your mother who birthed you, who nursed you, who cared for you, deeply loves you. And you should at least find out what is it that bothers her because she may have some real checks in her spirit and she may see some issues that uh, she just uh, is very cautious about. Maybe issues that can be addressed, Uh, maybe issues that she doesn't think can be addressed, but you should find out and maybe you should seek counsel as a young engaged couple concerning other people. There's wisdom in a multitude of counselors. And if you told the problem to three or four other people and you had kind of a unanimous voice, then you should really proceed cautiously and slowly because many times the marriage relationships are built upon an infatuation that a person has for another person or two people have for each other, but not always on the wisdom of scripture. With all that said, if they get married and it looks like they're moving in that direction, since they are both believers, you can't say, well, you're marrying out of the will of God. You can't say that because if they're both born again, but there's obviously some issue that this mom has with this young man who is supposedly, and I'm taking it at face value, a born again Christian. But if they get married without mom's blessing, then the mother needs to say, well, look, you've made this decision and you need to embrace them. Uh, You don't need to shut them out. Uh, Your daughter is going to need you and you're going to shut the door to your daughter's life and your opportunity to come alongside a a new wife in years to come, possibly a new mother. You're going to shut that door so tight that it's going to be hard to walk back into it. And so my suggestion to you is that you don't slam that door so hard that you can't walk back into it. And look, if, if, if two people get married and your child, your child marries another believer, more than just about anything else, they need to know that you receive their mate and uh, a child needs to know that. And so, yeah, if you got some checks, now's the time to, to talk about it. But it looks like it's going to go forward in light of dad. And you need to uh, just really think through what you're doing is in reference to the 20 year old. I would say to you, well, look, if if you're living under mom's roof. And she's paying your bills and you need to obey her. If you're out on your own and your mom says, I don't want you to go. And you feel like you want to be there to support your sister then without dishonoring your mother, then I would say go and say, mom, I'm going to go because I don't want to close the door in my sister's life. And she is my sister and he is born again. It's not like you can say that she's being unequally yoked. And yeah, you've got some concerns that maybe are legitimate, but I want to keep the door open so I can be an encouragement to my sister for years to come and my potentially new brother-in-law. So that's how I would probably sort it out if you were 
sitting there in front of me. And I would really want to know, too, what the mom's concerns were and how she has addressed them with her daughter and potentially her future son-in-law. Anyway, good question. Okay, we've got about three and a half minutes left. Hopefully you can squeeze this one in. What is the definition of a born-again Christian, someone wants to know? Well, Jesus said in John chapter 3, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. When he made that statement to Nicodemus, Nicodemus said, how can a man be born when he's old? He can't re-enter his mother's womb and be born, can he? Of course not. It's a rhetorical question with a no answer. I don't understand, Jesus. You can't have two physical births. And Jesus said, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That's your first birth. That's your physical birth. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. That's your second birth. Do not marvel, I say to you, you must be born again. He said, a man must be born of water and the spirit to enter the kingdom of God. Your first birth, the flesh birth, is of water. Um, The water breaks, you come into this world. Not enough to be born once, you must be born twice. Well, Jesus says, you're the teacher of Israel and you don't really get this. And then he illustrates to Nicodemus how it takes place. He said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the son of man be lifted up, that whoever believes me in him have eternal life. He's quoting from the book of Numbers. And if you go back into Numbers, they left... uh, Uh, Egypt, they were wandering out there in the wilderness and they began to complain and grumble. So God sent poisonous snakes amongst the people so that many people were bitten and died. Uh, They came to Moses. They said, look, Moses, we've sinned against you. We've sinned against God. Pray for us. Moses intercedes for the people. God says, here's the solution. Make a snake out of bronze in the likeness of the one that bit them. Set it high on a pole. If anyone will simply look to my provision, they will live. And so anyone, the Bible says, who looked at the snake immediately lived. And so Jesus said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the son of man be lifted up. Jesus likewise was lifted up on a cross. And just as the snake was in the likeness of the one that bit them, the snake made out of bronze, even so Jesus became sin for us. In his sinless self, he bore our sin on the cross. And the word I wrote to lift up is used not only of Jesus being lifted up on the cross, but also being lifted up in resurrection from the dead. And so there's a parallel there that Nicodemus, who understood the Old Testament scriptures, would have grasped that just as the children of Israel could do absolutely nothing to save themselves because the poison was going through their veins and their only hope was to look to the living God and his provision. Even so, if you want to be born again, you must look to the living God, to the one who is raised up on a cross and raised from the dead, showing that he could die as your substitute because death could not hold him in that grave. And if you will put your faith, not in yourself, But in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ alone, every sin that you've committed or might commit will be eternally forgiven. And then for the first time ever, God, the Holy Spirit, will come to live inside of you at the moment you believe. He will show you that in the weeks ahead. He'll bear witness with your spirit that you've become a child of God. You will be born again. You can listen to a message on it from my series on the Gospel of John at searchthescriptures.org. Click on John 3, 1 through 17. We're out of time. Thanks for joining us today for Search the Scriptures. 